What I cared about was that when I put my stick down, I retired. I was as good as I could have humanly been at this particular thing. And because I achieved that, I know that I maxed my potential out in face-offs. I want so desperately every kid to experience that. I don't care if that means that you make JV. I don't care if that means that you're going to be a three-time All-American and a Touraton finalist. I just want you to reach your potential because it, it's so satisfying and no one can ever take that from you. Welcome to Sweat Equity, a true lacrosse podcast, taking you behind the scenes with the game's biggest influencers, rising stars, and those who have made the sport what it is today. Episode one with the beast, Greg Grenlian. Let's hop in on that conversation. Doing all those things. Um, had you stopped playing like full time um, before you had your oldest or were you still playing? No, I was still playing. I actually retired because of him from the MLL and then I got talked into playing one year in the PLL. Yeah. Uh, but now I regret that my younger guy doesn't get, you know, never got a chance to watch me play, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. those would be, those would be great videos from, uh, from, for them from back in the day. Amen. Um, but no, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the time. I'm glad Corey was able to connect us. I was actually talking with him, uh, talking with him earlier today. Um, he's a great guy. He's a, he's a good pickup for us for sure. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, but I, I wanted to start out. I saw, uh, I, I dove into your interview with, uh, with Taylor Cummings, which was mm-hmm. awesome, by the way. Um, I mean, fantastic. And I wanted to basically just ask you, like, I did a little bit of, you know, research into Beast Lab and, you know, just <clears throat> what that's going to be. I mean, is it, I mean, those, her interview is great. So I have to imagine there's plenty of more content like that to come, but just give you a little bit of a platform now to share that everybody listening, obviously when, when this episode airs, we'll share that information to make sure everybody can to get on and follow that and check that out. But I just want to give you to open up just a little bit of how that started out and what you're doing with that. um, As we look to launch a a podcast as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. The, the beast lab was started out as just me doing videos in my garage, just showing kids how to do face off stuff. Um, and then as that really took on a life of its own, we've come full circle now with the Faceoff Academy where, you know, my, my original career was as a strength coach. That's what I went to college for. That's what I was at Penn State before I moved to the private sector in New York. And Jerry, my um, Jerry Agonese has been begging me for years to be more active into the strength and conditioning with our athletes because that's my profession. And he said, you know, let's be honest, like a lot of people out there are faking face-off coaching but the one thing they can't fake is the knowledge of what you bring to the table. I was like, okay. So as I'm now at this age and we have a lot of really good, talented up and coming coaches that are going through the FOA ranks that are in college right now, like Sisselberger, Tommy Burke, Jax Pavlovich, those guys are going to be more the face of this thing. And you know, now that I'm not playing anymore, I think it's a better role for me to start really focusing on how I can help athletes remotely from a strength and conditioning and physical realm. But I also wanted to get back into the fitness world uh, because I know so many people in Westchester now that are strength coaches, mindfulness experts, et cetera. So the idea was to reimagine the Beast Lab as an athlete hub. So when you guys see the VOD of me doing interviews, we have interviews. We're going to be dropping two interviews a month for the rest of the year, and we'll continue after that. Um, so I've done 24 interviews already and they are everything from lacrosse athletes that I know well to, um, mindfulness experts, mobility experts, strong man, CrossFit, everything. 
chiropractors, all kinds of people. And, um, the idea is to create a athlete hub where someone can go, not just a lacrosse player, but any athlete can go learn about these athletes. And I'm finding people that are good at what they do to try to filter out the BS that you see out there and basically give these trainers, coaches, athletes, a platform to speak, to show and demonstrate their knowledge and their personality. So if I'm an athlete and I come to the YouTube page, I'm like, wow, you know, Nicole, uh, is Nikki is awesome, uh, at Olympic lifts. And I'm seeing her whole list of videos of her demonstrating, uh, you know, all these exercises. And then I get to see her personality. I want to reach out to her, see if she could teach me. Uh, and that's kind of the idea. And then in March, we'll be officially launching FO athlete performance, which will be an arm of the beast lab and FO athlete performance will be a remote strength training, face-off and mentorship program that I'll be running. Um, it'll be an application process. I'll only take on 20 people a year and I will basically become your personal remote strength coach. I will help you with your programming, your mobility, your face-off training, and I'll also be available to you to bounce ideas off, help you with recruiting, et cetera. So that's what's going to be launching in March. Um, so when the website's done on 323, we'll, we'll launch it fully and it'll be pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, no, I mean, I think that, I mean, it's even when we talked about, you know, as, as we go through the process um, of getting, you know, getting this off the ground, so much of that resonated with the conversations we were having um, within true, which was this idea of, you know, I feel like the pandemic created this hyperspeed drive to the podcast platform to online educate, you know, everybody became so comfortable with it yeah. and also realized, man, like this is such an easy, not as easy, but an easy way to gain access to experts. You know, it's like for, I joke for, you know, for Christmas, my parents got me a subscription to the masterclass app. And I was like, all right, like, this looks kind of cool. And next thing you know, it's like, <laughs> you're down this rabbit hole with chefs, you know, you're like, what? The yeah. it's, but you have that access. And, you know, when I was listening to your, you know, to your interview with, with Taylor, it just reminded me, you know, I have three daughters and I'm like, you know, a decade ago, they wouldn't have had access to, you know, sit down and listen to her, to, to listen to her talk. Um, mm -hmm. and now, you know, now it's become commonplace and it's a, I just love the fact that within, and we'll get into the, you know, the very niche nature, obviously of, of the face off, but I, I love all the other aspects, the strength piece, the mindfulness piece, I think is huge. Um, yeah. you know, it's something obviously that is just becoming more and more prevalent, um, and I think more and more coaches are leaning into understanding the value of it um, and the necessity of teaching it within their programs. But it's actually a perfect little segue into one thing I wanted to ask you about the face-off thing. So I'm watching the NFL uh, AFC championship game. Cincinnati's kicker goes out there, ice in the vein, bangs at home. And I laughed. I was like thinking about this conversation. I was like, there's so much of a connection between a face-off guy and a kicker in this like, the balance of isolation, but also insane impact on a game. And you can, you know, you can change the momentum of a game within three seconds, quite literally. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a, there's a mental aspect of being comfortable with that. And, you know, to all of our guys listening, you know, if you're a face-off guy, you're obviously listening to this, but there are going to be other athletes listening to this that might not face off, but can definitely take from what I'm about to ask you, what is the mental side, even as you've gotten out of playing professionally, but as you look back, what are those pieces that kind of helped you be in the moment and manage that emotion 
when a game is on the line, you know, you guys score a goal to tie it. Everybody's going crazy. And you have to be the calm one walking out there yeah. to win the next face off. Like your heart rate has to go down while everyone else's is going up. Talk a little bit about how you manage that personally, but then also how you coach kids managing that now. No, it's great that you asked that because it is the biggest part. And I feel like it's one of the best things that I and the FOA excel at when it comes to coaching because anyone could blow whistles. But I think people have asked me how, what, what percentage actually a niche asked me during an interview, what percentage of face-offs are mental? And I said, well, <clears throat> it's, it's pretty easy. You look at the percentage of a game we play in, right. Which would probably be 10%, 90% of it's mental because it's an emotional and vulnerable position on the, on the lacrosse field because no one understands us. Our coaches don't understand us. The fans don't understand. Our teammates have no idea how to figure us out. We're doing something that no one else gets. But the only other person on that whole field who understands us is our opponent. So it's an emotional position because people look at the box score and go, oh, this guy went eight for 25. He must suck. They don't know if the ref is allowing the other guy to cheat. They don't know if their wing play is not in sync. They don't know anything, right? So my rule when I'm teaching my athletes, one, I train them to lose. And I'm, what I mean by that is I train them in positions where they will compete against very good guys. I will put them in a position. So for instance, say you're a top five faceoff guy in the country. You have insane hand speed. You'll come and train with me in a session. We have these elite sessions. I'll put another top tier guy against you, but I will say you're only allowed to do counters because I know you're not good at them and I want you to get better at them you're going to lose a lot of face-offs compared to what you're used to when you just clamp over and over again with your friends. You will mentally have to understand, am I going to just get frustrated and pout about losing some face-offs or am I going to will myself to get better at what my weaknesses are so that I can win more? The part that I really try to train into my guys' heads because it's an emotional position. I'm a super emotional type A person. So I struggled with this. And the reason I got better throughout my career was because I got better at managing my emotions to become more analytical and less emotional. So my rule is if you lose a face off and I, I had the same rule for myself, you have from the time you lose the face off to the time you get to the sideline to feel bad about yourself, give yourself from the time you get to the box to the time you get to the, your lonely little place on the sideline where nobody wants to stand next to you. Usually the backup goal is your boy. You have that time to vent to yourself, right? Whether it's, you know, or whatever you got to do. Once you stand still, now you have to be analytical. You have to focus on the technical reason that you just lost. It can't be, yeah, maybe the guy's rolling into it. Maybe he's leaning, whatever, but it can't be that. That can't be the excuse. After you vent, the excuse has to be, what can I do to correct this? And if you spend the next three to four minutes or whatever it is before the next face-off, Focusing on the technical aspect of what you can do to be better, you don't have time to throw your helmet and have a temper tantrum. You don't have time to freak out. So you lost that three minutes to fix it. And when I work, I work with so many colleges now. One of the biggest things that we work on is how to manage your depth chart. Similar to how you would see a college football program have the second, third string quarterbacks would be holding the signs, feel active in the game. Quarterback throws interception, comes to the sideline, looking at the iPad. The other quarterbacks are around him, looking at stuff and diagnosing. That's what you have to do with your face-off guys. I'm the starter. I come off the field. Say, starter for Penn State, come off. I lost a face-off. Maybe I lost three in a row. 
the, the, the freshman who's never going to play the junior. Who's my backup. Maybe the red shirt guy. One of them should be holding an iPad watching every face off. So when I come off, we're looking at it together. So now there's, Oh, okay. This wing's shifting up right before the whistle. So when you exit, that's why he was all over you. Oh, this guy's doing a counter. So he can, now everyone feels like they're part of it. One, you just brought the guys who aren't on the field. They, they feel like they're part of it. Now they are. The starter doesn't feel so alone because we always feel alone in this sport all the time. And just when you think you figured it out and people respect you, they change the rules and you start all over again. We'll, we'll get um, into that in a minute. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so that's, that's really what I just described. I just talked for a long time, but all of that is the emotional and analytical part of this position that only someone who's been through all of it can understand and teach. And we spend a lot of time on that with our guys. And I only do it with the guys who are receptive to it. If I meet you and I train you a few times and, I, and you don't listen, I'm not going to waste my time on this part. If you're a guy who I know is going to go through the ranks because you're a great learner and you really want to be coached, these guys are the ones who benefit from that. That's why Trevor, ice in his veins, right? Jake Withers, ice in his veins. Those guys really wanted to learn this stuff. I love that. I love the... I love you, the use of the word analytical. Um, you know, I think it's as much as I think it's a generational thing in coaching, but this idea of technology has now afforded us the ability You talk about the iPad. Like, I mean, just being able to have someone with an iPad filming a face off to where you can come off and immediately get that, get that instant feedback. Um, God, I would have loved that in college. Right. I was going to unbelievable. Right. I mean, and I say that from the standpoint of, I remember um, when I was coaching at Denison, we spent a season and we used, um, I forget the name of the app, but where basically took the game film and dropped it. You know, um, Tillman's made it super popular, obviously at Maryland with the iPad attached to his hand. But I remember going through that the very first game we did it, it blew my mind. So I was mm-hmm. like looking at, you know, an extra man situation as the offensive coordinator and, you just knew, okay, like this is how they're sliding across the backside. This is who's not getting down. And you're able to then just be like, here's your look. And yeah. from a face-off standpoint, I have to believe that it's a game changer to be able oh, to have that ability massive. right there. I when mean, I, I try to explain to my guys, I spend a lot of time trying to teach people how to study film correctly. Sure. When I was at Penn State, and we didn't have that, right? So we had, I had a tape deck. You know, you had the tapes, you had the combo TV. Oh yeah. And just stacks and stacks of tapes. But when I was at, when I played with the lizards, every, here's a little look into the psychotic nature of myself. After every MLL game, I would record every game. I'd come back to my apartment at night. I would eat a pizza. I would watch, I'd have my notebook. I would watch the every face off for the entire game. And I would make notes about what exactly happened on every face off what I was doing right. Even if I went 30 for 32, didn't matter. Maybe there was a way to do it better. After I had all my notes and I made all my mental corrections, I would tear the piece of paper out, crumple it up, throw it in the trash and go to bed at 3 a.m. And that's what I did after every single MLL game. Um, after, after I blew my knee out, I wasn't as analytical before that. I was more physical. I, I didn't understand the position enough. Once I really started getting my groove is when I started loving, loving film. And that's what I hope you know, like you said, we almost have so much technology that we're just completely jaded by. It. You used to have to wait two weeks to get film of stuff. Right. Um, but now it's all right there. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I started college coaching, we were driving to drop off DVDs or we were like <laughs> burning them and putting them in the mail and having to send tracking information to opponents. And like, 
I mean, it's, it's crazy. And it, I mean, that was only, I mean, that's 10, 12 years ago that we were yeah. doing that. Um, but an interesting thing, well, two pieces of what you said, they'll go in different directions, but the first one you had mentioned that, you know, no one knows the position except for the other guy. Like, mm-hmm. and I find that fascinating because I feel like, and this is, you know, just an observer. I feel like face off similar to goalie is that idea of like, you don't know what it is unless you've done it mm-hmm. and the pressure. And I mean, all of that, but there also seems to be a very tight knit for lack of a better term, like brotherhood among face off guys. And when I say that, I mean like really committed face off guys, you rattled off Trevor Withers, Justin Anasio, that's here at Ohio state. I'm out of Columbus. Yep. Um, so I, I see no, Justin plenty. one of the best in the country. Um, what is it? Talk a little bit about that competitive spirit. That is, you all know each other, you know, tenant now with technology, you know, tendencies, but just that respect level, especially yeah. at the highest, you know, if Trevor and Jake are going against each other, like there is the like Kobe and Jordan aspect of, you know, I want to beat your brains in, but at the same time, I respect your game and what you do. Talk a little bit about that. Cause it's so unique. Cause it is truly the only one-on-one moment. Like you yeah. have wing play, but like for that first two seconds, it is, it is one-on-one. It is. And, you know, like I said, you and I are going to take 10 face-offs in this game, right? Most likely one of us is going to have more face-off wins than the other. And you're going to have to sit with that for a year, right? Until you get to see me again, if you're lucky. Um, I think that's one of the things, you know, I, I started to gain more respect for as I continued to play the game um, because I wasn't a face-off specific guy until I got to the pros. I didn't understand the concept of only facing off until I got to the pros and I had to learn how to be one of those guys. As I continued to play, I understood it, but I've never subscribed to the concept that you have to hate an opponent in order to play well against them. And maybe that's because I have a martial arts background or a wrestling background, but you know, you, you go to a wrestling practice every day, you grind, you kill yourself. You respect the hell out of anybody who's going to do that. Um, so when we're going to compete against each other, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to ruin your life. I just really don't want you to beat me. And I want you to give me everything you got though. I don't want you to come show up out of shape. I don't want you to show up and have an off day. I want to beat you at your absolute very best. And not everybody looks at it that way. And I get that, but you know, I, Chris Eck and I are great friends. Now we work together with the FOA but we were bitter rivals for a long time. And we were one and two in the MLL for every year. It seemed like for a while. And if it wasn't for that, I never would have reached my potential. And I think that when I'm trying to instill that in my guys now of, you know, I think that you guys training against each other all the time is great. There's two ways to get ahead of somebody. One is to run past them. The other is to try to pull them back. And I am all about the former. I'm all about you giving everything you have in practice to make this guy better. So it pushes you to be even better. Um, And my guys, FOA guys buy into that. Um, And you can, that's why they're unique. Like you can college coaches have said, I can tell face off Academy guy from a mile away. And that's why. Um, So the way you, you know, we teach that and instill that, like I said before, is we have this iron sharpens iron mentality. 
we drill together. We go hard together. If I think someone's dogging it in a draw day or whatever, I get on them about it. I'm like, look, this guy's paid the same amount of money as you. He expected to get here and get better. Cause I just go back to my martial arts. I go, go to karate and, and I show up at the dojo and I don't, and I think I'm half-assing it. I'm totally screwing this person across from me who's supposed to be sparring with me. So, you know, that's the way we instilled it in this in these guys. And they become brothers because of it. And I was just talking to Zach Hepworth, who's a Colgate commit yesterday. And he's talking about how, like, there's just massive group chats. And I think the Nashville Showcase with the Faceoff Academy, that was our, our baby. It's going to be our 10th year. The vision I had for it was these kids all know of each other. But what if the kids from Texas met the kids from New York, you know, now that's happened. And now with social media, it's so cool. And, and they all know of each other and they all are friends. It is very cool. And it gives you a sense of I'm not alone. And people might be like rolling their eyes like, oh, it's too heavy. No, I mean, deal with it. Unless you like on Twitter every day, every single spring, it's going to happen again this year. Adam Gittleman or somebody's going to get on Twitter, talk about how face-offs aren't cool. should get rid of them because uh, they're looking for some clickbait. And I'm going to get a whole bunch of tags and I have to explain why I should exist again. You know, after all the effort I've put into for two, almost two decades in the sport of lacrosse, why should I exist? And that's what these kids go through every day. So it's great to have that community. Yeah. And I, and I love the point about connecting all the dots. Like one of the things it's funny, and maybe this is a generational thing. I don't know, but I, so when I was coaching at, at Denison, like I loved the fact that our guys like new guys on the teams we were playing mm -hmm. and like they had either, they had played against each other in high school or in club. And like, there was a competitive spirit that to your point, I subscribe very much to like, I don't have to hate you to want to beat you. And in a weird way, like beating my best friends is, oddly more rewarding sometimes <laughs> um, yeah. there's a reason that yeah. is popular <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but that idea of these guys connecting the dots before they even get to that next level and for all of them their next levels are are different which is one thing i wanted to ask you know i think that you know one misconception be it about you know face off academy or club lacrosse in general is you know in order for it to you know, in order for a guy like you to care, like this kid has to be the best face-off kid in the country. But I have to believe just listening to listening to you talk, following you on social, kind of getting a, a feel for your approach to coaching. That's not the case. Like, it seems like there are qualities, you know, even if it's a, you know, your middle of the road division three program, but there's a face-off kid that works with you. That's just a grinder. Like, there has to be qualities that you're looking for in kids outside of, do you have incredible hand speed? What are some of There's, those qualities? You make a great point. And you know, that's the parallel between what we do in club lacrosse, right? <clears throat> if you're not a stud, how, you know, how often do you hear, Oh, he's got his guy, you know, like, right. <clears throat> There's two things I'm sensitive to. One is assuming that I have to care about you because you're talented and assuming that, that I'm only going to coach you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a lot of money. I came from not a lot of money. And I even say today, if I were growing up now, I would probably wouldn't afford to be able to play lacrosse. Um, it's gotten completely nuts. So I'm very sensitive to that. And, you know, I think the thing people have to understand, which if people don't want to like you, then they're going to, they're not going to care about what I'm about to say. But 
if people want to understand an insight into how I approach this thing, and I think many coaches do is what you pay for. You're not paying for the hour with me. If you come to my draw days, you're not paying for the hour of face-off training with me that week. What you get in return are the countless hours I spent on the phone with your parents, walking them off ledges around recruiting time. The, I just got a panic seven, uh, I just got a panic phone call at like 2 PM today about a kid who had a real situation that not had nothing to do with lacrosse. I'm there for him. You know, I believe that my job is to use lacrosse to be a mentor and I get a lot of pride and I sleep really well at night knowing that I am giving people countless things that they're not paying for because that's just my duty. Now, regardless of a coach or whatever, as a coach, you have an extension. You're, you're an extension of people's parents. You're an extension of people's mentorships. So I think, you know, any kid who is going to have the balls to come into my practice, train with the best kids in the country that are committed going up wherever, and he is going to listen to what I say and he wants to learn from me, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that he gets the most benefit out of that. And the reason it's easy for me to look at it that way is because when people ask me what my goals were when I played lacrosse, my goal had never anything to do with anyone else. I never wanted to have a better face-off percentage than that guy. I never gave a crap if I was an All-American over that guy. What I cared about was that when I put my stick down and I retired, I was as good as I could have humanly been at this particular thing. And because I achieved that, I know that I maxed my potential out in face-offs. I want so desperately every kid to experience that. I don't care if that means that you make JV. I don't care if that means that you're going to be a three-time All-American and a Toraton finalist. I just want you to reach your potential because it, it's so satisfying and no one can ever take that from you. Um, now, the limiting factor to that is, are you going to listen to me? <laughs> I, I joke all the time, and you know this. As a coach, it prepared me for fatherhood because I'm very – prepared for someone not to listen to me most of the time now. Oh yeah. Um, but if I'm a coach and you're going to come in here, I'm going to give you everything I got as long as you're willing to listen. If you don't want to listen, then I have no qualms with that. That's cool. You have reached your limit. That's as good as you're getting, but your backup's listening and I will help him. Um, so that's the way I look at that. And I don't, I don't, if you're going to work with me, man, I don't care how talented you are. All I care about is that you want to work hard and you're willing to listen. I will do anything for you if that's the case. Yeah. And it's, as you're saying this, there's a, a quote I wrote down when I was listening to your interview with, uh, with Taylor and you guys were talking about strength coaches, but you said that having a coach that's willing to have that conversation with you um, and has the ego to step back and do what's best for you. It, I mean, it jumped off the page to me because, you know, it's, I'm, you know, in that interview, you're listening to two of the best, to do what they do in our sport, but also to people that are now coaching. And one of the things that I find fascinating is there's an assumption that if you were a great player, you're going to be a great coach. And there's an assumption that if you were not a great player, then you can't be a great coach. And, you know, whether that's, I mean, obviously I don't think that's correct, but perception is reality. And I mm -hmm. think that, what I find so inspiring from coaches, you know, like yourself and listening to Taylor and other folks is people that did it at the highest level, but look at it from the standpoint of 
you're, you know, as your coaching kid, like you might not be the next Greg Grinlin and that's okay. There's not going to be another one, but what's, what's your best. Yes. You what know, is, what can guys, you do? Yep. Yeah. We talked to our guys all the time about like this phrase, like I want to get to the next level and it drives me insane. Cause I'm like, well, what does that even, what does that even mean? Like you're, <laughs> you're a seventh grader. Your next level is quite literally the eighth grade team. Like yeah. your next level is not Duke. Like, yeah, that's so far down the road. And I, when she, when you guys were having that conversation, you know, I wanted to ask you and you answered it before I even got to ask your take on that, but where does, where does that approach come from? Like, did you, were there coaches that you had that you like pulled this from, or there coaches that you've observed? Like, where did you build this philosophy? I know you mentioned martial arts and I'm sure you're going to lean towards that, but like, where did you build this philosophy? Because as you said, like, if you were just looking at you as a player, you're going to be thinking alpha type a intensity, like, but there, you know, there is a vulnerability and an empathetic side required in order to pull out the best in others. Where did you, where did you find that? Who did you, you know, get that from? Where do you find it now? I, I believe that we are all where, wherever we are in our lives are, a small combination of genetics, but we are mostly just a sum of our experiences. And I just did, it's a weird flex. I just went, I just gave my hall of fame speech in in PA and my entire speech was literally a timeline of every person I have met in this sport that has helped me. And as I go through that, the, the reason I did that one is I didn't want to leave my way out, but two, no one achieves anything worthwhile by themselves. They can say they do, but even a, you know, a kid who has nothing, somebody had to have given him a shot. Somebody had to have believed him. Someone had to have driven him to practice, you know, like, so like I am where I am because of all of those people collectively, you know, I, at every single step I had, I was going to quit high school across as I started in high school and it was freaking impossible. And I was getting made fun of the nickname beast was cause I was getting made fun of at practice. Cause I was a skinny kid who was trying to hit everybody. And when I was prepared to tell my coach that I was going to quit, he didn't know, but completely out of nowhere, the assistant coach, Rick Johnson came over and he put his arm around me. He said, I know this first year was really tough for you, but I swear to God, if you keep playing this sport, you'll light the world on fire. If that man never said that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I never would have played lacrosse again. Yeah. Those types of things happen my whole life. So my philosophy is there's if you feel like you want to say something to a kid, always say it because you have no idea if it's going to matter or not. And I also believe that everybody is a sum of their experiences. So a kid is going to be, you know, if I can be a part of that for that kid, I can get him just over that extra hump. I believe that eventually they'll become exactly who they're supposed to be and more. And like you said, it, it you know, people say, I want to get to that next level. Well, I was like, when I used to be a, tra- a strength coach and someone would come in the gym, like, I got to lose 10 pounds. Like why, where did that number come from? Do you have any scientific basis for that? Same thing. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I believe like you, you made a great point. If you're great at something, it doesn't mean you'd be a great coach. 
If that was the case, then every year the best football players would retire and just take on an NFL team and win a million Super Bowls. Um, no one can give me Bill Belichick's professional stats, right? So there are a lot of people who try to rest on those laurels, though, and they think, I'm going to just start a clinic, I'm going to start a camp, I'm going to start whatever, and because I did this on the field, everyone's going to come. Yeah, they'll come that first day for that autograph, man. But you damn well better prove that you know how to develop talent and make this an investment. I think there are a lot of things that people can spend money on in our sport. There are very few things that are an investment of money and time. And I believe very deeply that you need to over deliver. So every time somebody comes and works with you, whether it's a league, club, tournament, whatever, they walk away going, that was an investment and I would have paid more for that. That was awesome. Yeah. And I love, yeah, the investment piece is, uh, is huge. You know, we, you know, we talk about it a ton. It's funny with kids of my own and my, my oldest daughter did, uh, club soccer for the first time last year. And it was funny, like, you know, being a club guy, I was like, okay, like I know what to look for and yeah. we, we sign up for it and you know, it's not cheap and no, but I'm like, all right, again, this is going to be an investment. And I knew what I was investing in, but it was when I went to the first training session, I came home. My wife asked me, what did you think? I was like, it's the best thing we could have done. She quiet. I was like, because they train the way I would want to see a lacrosse press. Like, I don't know soccer from anyone, like, but I know what quality coaching and urgency and accountability mm-hmm. and empathy and like, and you're watching these qualities going, yes, that like yeah. that piece right there. And I was like, you know, my daughter's not going to be the next Mia Hamm. That's okay. And the best part is the young kids listening to this don't even know who Mia Hamm is. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> I was like, I have to say like Alex Morgan, I guess is the right one. But, um, but yeah, that investment piece of, you know, I think again, like what comes across so much is, and I think going back to what we talked about being in that isolated position as a face-off guy is so unique, but then in your work is like, you know, is building that confidence level and that, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable and all these, you know, people say are cliches, but they're so real that in order to do that, you have to have coaching that, that understands those qualities before they can even, you know, before they can even build them. Um, I just, I mean, I, I love that approach. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that for every coach listening, like, pay attention to those aspects of the job. Like the X's and O's are, are great, but some of the, some of the best coaches in the country do not run complex X's and O's. They just have guys that'll run through walls for them. Um, yeah. But you know, with that in a, in a slight transition, cause I want to make sure I hit on it before I, before I let you go, you had mentioned the changing of the rules. Um, and I watched a, I was watching an interview you did with LSN at LaxCon and you you touched on the rules committee coming to you guys um, as as face-off specialists because no one on the committee and I might be, correct me if I'm wrong on how this worked but no one on the committee was really a face-off specialist and they're talking about the rules and they came to you basically to collaborate and understand your perspective on it and I wanted the reason I want to ask this is I think it's something as I listened to you say it I immediately was like well, it's really cool that they did that because it's an understanding of, I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I need the right people providing me information. 
And I think that that aspect of the sport, you know, we talk about like the crease dive. We, we talk about all these rule changes, but the faceoff is so specific that I thought it was very, very rewarding almost to hear that they came to you. Talk a little bit about those conversations as, I mean, the faceoff position, the rule change, all of it has been such a hot button topic because it impacts the game at such a high level. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that want to make money blowing whistles for kids face off wise. There seems to be one or two of us that are willing to actually be advocates for the position. And I'm not talking about an angry tweet. I'm talking about hours and hours and hours of reaching out to people and pleading with them and offering experience and completely swallowing your ego and, and borderline groveling and saying, I will do anything to help you guys make this easier. Right. And I have been met with resistance at every single post. I, I mean, the, you know, for years, rules committee wants nothing to do with me because of my predecessors. Anybody who used to teach face-offs before 2012 taught cheating. So there was an adversarial relationship between referees and face-off guys that I had to try to hurdle, right? I'm not here to cheat. Hi, I'm the guy who's trying to help. Um, you know, I try to point out to officials very simple, basic things to make their lives easier so they're not getting screamed at as much. And instead, I get an angry tweet from Maddie Palin, right? I love Maddie. I love the coaches. I love the rules committee. I think everyone is tr trying to do what's right for the sport. But it does get to a point where you go, are you saying that or do you mean it? Because if you meant it, you don't have to call me. If you don't like me because you hate my political views or whatever I am on Twitter, that's fine. I don't care. Call somebody, man. Um, because I don't have any skin left in the game. I'm not, I'm not playing. I want it to be fair and I want it to be clean and I want it to be easy to watch on television so our sport can move forward. And I want you to leave the damn kids alone. That's like at the end of the day, it looks like when you look at the NCAA rules committee, there's a, a group of guys in a room, whether they do or not, the optics of it are jockeying for position to help themselves because they have something they have skin in the game right now. Basing rules on something they've never done goes to the NCAA officials who most of them have never faced off. They then take the gray area rules that were just written and try to impose how they're going to officiate them. My whole thing has always been the same. If I step out of bounds one time, everybody on TV knows that it's out of bounds and we don't, we don't, we just call it dead. And I want it to be that simple for face-offs and it can be. And as my wife has heard me say millions of times at the damn dinner table, we could knock this out in a weekend if the right people were in the room and I don't want to get paid for it. I don't want to, I don't have an agenda we just want our position to be good. So our sport can be good. Um, my issue though, is I get it from both sides. So I get it from the people that hate face-offs, but I also get it from face-off guys because I'm not banging my chest saying it's perfect. Leave it alone. I'm the third side of the guy going, let's be rational about this. And lacrosse Twitter hates that. Um, so, you know, not the NCAA rules committee. It was USA lacrosse's federation rules committee. Rick okay. Lake spearheaded it. Rick Lake is the man, no ego involved at all. The entire group, we got on a zoom call. They explained to me the rules and we went rule by rule. 
I explain why some things were written away that makes it harder on officials because there's gray area. I explained how from the moment you put the ball down to the set mechanic to how you officiated after the whistle can be very black and white. They were amazing, incredibly receptive. It was a conversation. It wasn't me talking at anyone. It was great. And then he came up. We went to the LaxCon rules committee meeting. We had a referees roundtable. Jerry and I set aside time. 70 officials showed up. And it proves that they want to get it right. And they would, and the right people, just like coaches, want information to make themselves better. And that's all we've been trying to do, man. So I'm at a point now where I think this particular group of guys in the NCAA rules committee understand and are intelligent enough. They understand face-offs. They understand that they're important to the game and they want to make sure it's right. I'm always here if anybody needs any information, but you know, I'm at a point now where for a decade I've been beating the drum like Don Quixote trying to get, keep this thing going. At some point, somebody else who is making tons of money off of face-off training needs to step up and be an advocate for it because, you know, I feel like, I, there, I have a shelf life before people completely tune me out because I've been here too long. Um, so my my goal was to try to make as much progress as I could for our position until that happens. <laughs> now, do you like where the rules are now? The rules are fine. The rules are fine. The problem is, is we're probably going to change them again at some point before the officials are caught up. If we can just let the officials get caught up and make sure that every official from Phoenix, Arizona to Sanctum, Long Island is calling it the same way will be great. I am always there to give credit to the NCAA Rules Committee. Stand up neutral grit. I was tar and feathered by everybody under the sun. I thought it was smart. I thought it was smart because it makes the face off so much more dynamic. Yes. It makes it if, – if you were faster than me at doing this with your right hand when we were knee down – you were going to beat me. Now I can have a counter and then there's a counter for a counter and there's different styles of face-off guys, long poles, uh, two-way middies can play. The injury rate is going to significantly drop. Guys, right labrums are torn everywhere. Right wrists are destroyed. This will go away. So I think the rules are great. If they ever really want to make it more three on three, just bring the wings in another yard on either side. That's all you got to do. Yeah. But I think it's perfect the way it is. Now we just need the officials to either have an education situation or give them time. So they're all on the same page because that's the final key. If once you do that, this thing will normalize. Look at it. Every time they change the rules, the guy who leads the league, the nation in faceoff percentage goes up by like 15%. So Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's funny you said like the, the Phoenix to Long Island, the consistency piece, because I'll say as, as a college coach, when the, when the dive came back in, it was, I mean, it was a nightmare. And in fairness to the official, like you could, you could play back-to-back games and have four different explanations of, of what happened on on the exact same goal. And I just remember thinking like, we've created a rule that actually does like it's hard to me again, and maybe it's too simplistic, but it's very difficult to have a rule that doesn't have a black and white answer to it. Yeah. Because then I was like, okay, well in this case, I'm like, well, this becomes very difficult now at game speed. 
oh to, my god to determine Possibly. to determine the, the gray the, and the, the same thing push on the face dive off. the push dive call on the cross is the hardest thing maddie palin gets mad at me he goes you try refing no i would yeah. suck at it i don't want any part of that i'm trying to help you get better at it you're already good at it i just that push dive call is i want no part of that well that's I have, why i appreciate you know what you it saying, is like i think simplicity. we need a third crease i think we need a third crease right <laughs> is that just keep adding lines it'll definitely get easier <laughs> no but as you were talking about it i was laughing like the i mean i came up in the era of like doug knight and michael watson like doug knight diving i mean that's literally how he scored goals so like that's i laugh like that's how i played i I watched him and replicated it. And then you fast forward and they took it away. And I was, you know, I understood the safety reason why, but at the same time, the, you know, the excitement level of the goal is you're taking a piece of it away. But then when it came back, I laughed like the hysteria that it caused. I was like, just get rid of it again. Like this isn't worth, I mean, the awesome goal isn't worth the, you know, the headache. Right. I, I mean, there's so many games that are decided by, I'm for blanking on who it was. It was a division three tournament NCAA tournament game that was decided on a push dive. No call. Wasn't that tier, didn't that cost Denver? Was it Denver who lost in that game? I don't I remember, forget. but yeah, it was I, one of those. I was like, man, this is like, this yeah. is, this is tough. But when you were talking about that, I was like, yeah, the simplicity of trying to simplify it. Um, at the same time, you, you know, you mentioned guys like Trevor, who, you know, were quite literally all world players. Mm -hmm. How does the impact, how do these rule changes impact guys? You know, I mean, like yourself, but the next generation where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be really good at stand neutral, but in the back of my head, I'm just waiting for it to, <laughs> to change again, because yeah. it's, you know, you're developing your, well, I will say this. You are. I will say this actually in our referees round table, Kevin Forster, it was a really well-respected uh, NCAA and inter international rep. He told us that federate the um, world lacrosse rules are going towards NCAA rules. Okay. Um, which would be incredible because international face-off rules are a joke right now. Uh, everybody it's prison rules. Guys are ha whole hand is on the plastic. You're camped over the ball. You're guessing on every single whistle. Um, it's a mess. So that would actually be phenomenal. Now I think, you know, here's what kids don't understand. When I played, there were a dozen face-off rule changes in the time that I played lacrosse. There just wasn't a Twitter for people to freak out about it. Yes. Right? So the same cyclone of, of eight, 80 people wasn't there. I remember Guy Van Arsdale, assistant at Penn State, came up my senior year. I had just gotten – I was third in the country in face-off percentage the year before. He comes up to me and goes, hey, they're taking the set call out this year. We found out, I don't know a month before the season started, we're like, okay, so we'll practice without a second. Like, right. So, you know, for me, when I was in the MLL, I felt like they changed the rules every year and I stayed towards the top pretty much my whole career because I spent my time adapting rather than complaining. So like when the rule change happened in 2020, you know, Oh, we should sign a petition. We should, somebody posted the rules committee's phone numbers, like a psychopath. I was like, yeah, that's going to help us. Uh, they're going to go to a beach ball now because of that. Um, meanwhile, Jerry and I were getting screamed at because like, you guys don't care. You guys are not empathetic at all. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is our livelihood. They get rid of face-offs. I don't have a job anymore. Right. But I was saying this, here's the rules. Here's the new rules. Go. Let's start learning now. Let's go. Um, 
So my thing is always the same. Do I like rule changes? No. But if they change the rules, crying doesn't change it. They've never, you know, they've never gone, hey, guys, bad news. We just got an email from Greg. We're not going to change rules. Forget it. So I might as well spend all my energy teaching these kids. But I also think that's a teachable moment, right? As a father, as a coach, teaching these kids to roll with the punches and get and adapt to it right away rather than sit on your couch and freak out and cry. Knee down's not coming back, man. International rules are going to stand up. Everything's now stand up. Yep. So deal with it. Um, and you're going to be healthier for it. Now I got my kids, right? The same kids that were crying on Twitter. You know what? I kind of like these rules. Yeah, because you're good at it now. Yeah. So, you know, enjoy it. No, I like the adaptability piece. And, you know, with we talked earlier about technology, you know, and yesterday ESPN, you know, said there's 250 plus games, which is insane. Um, one of the last two questions I have for you, one is for the guys listening, if, you know, I'm a huge watch as much lacrosse as you can watch better lacrosse than you play to see how guys do what you do at a higher level, just to learn at the face-off position. If there were, you know, a dude or two that you would tell guys, like if you can get on ESPN and watch them, or if you can go on YouTube and watch them, who would those guys be? Yeah, there's a few guys, and for different reasons. Petey LaSalle has a, one of the best true plungers in the country. <clears throat> Tommy Burke has some of the best mechanics in the country. Um, Mike Sisselberger is a juggernaut, and he looks like a muscular version of SpongeBob SquarePants, so just watch him. Um, you're going to see guys who are really good at multiple things. So Zach Tucci will teach you how to run through walls for a ground ball, regardless of what's in front of you. Um, will, uh, uh <clears throat> Riley from Georgetown will teach you how to be adaptable. He has a rake. He has a counter. He killed Denver last year by going just rakes and counters. That's a kid you want to watch. Um, so those are some names off the top of my head that I think are really good. Um, but also there's like Zach Cole, Zach Cole at St. Joe's from not, not from a technical standpoint, just from like a meat stick standpoint, like he will, he shows you will, um, for ground balls and for, and for making the game, changing the game on a dive. So those are some names off the top of my head that I think you should definitely take a look at. I love that. I love that. Well, uh, this post will include those. Cause I always think it's, you know, it's with again, now that we have access to, to watch all of this, like let's be productive and actually, you know, get better with the technology and the, the growth of the game from a media standpoint. The last thing I'm going to ask you, which is not lacrosse related, but we are having this interview on a Friday night pizza night. I know this is a big deal. It's a big deal in our house. Go to pizza and your kids might not be old enough yet, but do your kids have a say yet in what kind of pizza you have they don't have any say in what i eat but they jacks is a big meatball slice guy all right milo is on milk still so he'll have to graduate we can have this conversation next year um but i my go-to is a sicilian pie okay because i eat real strict all week so i eat a full sicilian pie on friday night yes any place yes. in particular? Yes. Uh, Village Pizza, which is right across the street from Maranek High School, or Sal's Pizza um, on uh, on Maranek Avenue. All right. 
I was going to say that like, I literally had in my notes, I'm like Friday night, pizza night circled. Cause it's, <laughs> it's funny when you said the, the meatball pizza, it's, you know, when, when your kids are like, Oh, we want taco pizza. Like you have to like wrap your head around the fact that that exists. And, oh, then, when, so and cool, then when though. you eat it and you're like, Oh, this is actually, this is actually pretty good. Um, I actually have a gift certificate to sales right here from a kid that committed recently. Um, so I'm going to be spending that, spending my money there tonight. I love that. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough, man. Um, obviously the insight is, you know, from, from one of the best, but also just from a coach to a coach and a parent to apparently like your approach to it is, is awesome. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's much needed, you know, in the sport as we grow, I think having people that are willing to be advocates and allies and a voice of, you know, support for what they think is, what they think matters um, is a big deal because our sport is growing very, very quickly. Um, and our platform as a sport is growing with that. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, sometimes we run the risk of, of losing sight of the impact that we can have um, because of the flashy stuff happening around us in the sport. So I think, uh, I think your, your voice in that is awesome. Um, obviously the official beast lab um, for those listening, we'll have information out when this episode drops. So make sure you give that a follow. Um, and yeah, man, just, uh, keep at it. We really appreciate your, uh, your time and your willingness to, to hop on as, as we launch our own thing as well. No, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. This is awesome. And I, and good luck with the podcast, brother. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to episode one of Sweat Equity, a true lacrosse production. We hope you enjoyed the content with the beast. Next week on episode two, Janine Tucker, legendary head coach, Johns Hopkins, women's lacrosse.